This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman currently teaches at Columbia University and holds the first endowed chair in Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies. A close friend of the Dalai Lama, the New York Times called him the Dalai Lama's man in America. Robert Thurman is a co-founder of Tibet House in New York City, a cultural nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving the endangered civilization of Tibet. Robert Thurman is the author of many books, including Essential Tibetan Buddhism, Inner Revolution, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Real Happiness, as well as many other original books and translations of sacred Tibetan texts. With Sounds True, Robert has published several audio programs, including The Jewel Tree of Tibet, Making the World We Want, and Liberation Upon Hearing, In the Between, Living with the Tibetan Book of the Dead. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Robert and I spoke about bliss and how to tune to the bliss body in the midst of everyday life. We also talked about the importance for deep spiritual practitioners to find careers that allow them to stay close to the teachings. We talked about reincarnation and what Robert calls the infinite lifestyle and the question of what is it in us that reincarnates. Finally, we talked about the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday festivities, and Robert shared some of his own outrageous stories about the Dalai Lama and why he believes the Dalai Lama really matters. Here's my wild romp of a conversation with Robert Thurman. Robert, I feel so honored and happy to be able to talk with you here. Thank you so much for making the time. Nice to be with you, Tammy. It's always nice. Okay, so to begin, here you're 73 years old now, is that true? Uh, Actually, I'll be 74 on Monday. Okay, so on the edge of 74. And you have translated so many different texts and engaged in so much study and teaching. And I'm curious to know, what are the teachings that have been really the most pivotal to you in your own life that have created, in your view, the most change in your own life? Uh, Well, um, actually, all of them... In, in some way, but uh, particularly, I think the the teaching of non-duality, I, if anything, it's, it's been the most important to me. And uh, that comes from the Mahayana Sutras, of the, especially I was commissioned in the early 70s, a 
one of my first jobs after I got my PhD, I was commissioned to do a translation of the Vimalakirti Sutra, the teaching of Vimalakirti, it's called. And um, there, there's a famous thing on non-duality, a famous uh, event on non-duality, where a lot of bodhisattvas give their view of non-duality, and then Manjushri asks Vimalakirti of what his view is, and then Vimalakirti maintains silence. He doesn't say anything. And then 84,000 people attained in, uh, some higher stage of enlightenment than where they were. It's sort of a very famous, called the lion's roar of the silence of Vimalakirti. So, you know, I, I translated that, and I don't think I probably understood it that well, but I did translate the words well. And uh, then uh, I've been working on that. Then the, my dissertation was a work of John Kappas on Madhyamaka philosophy, you know, Nagarjuna's non-duality and the, all the complexities of what I call dialectical centrism. And that was very profound for me, actually, because that's really, that's the teaching of emptiness or voidness, as I prefer to call it, where you don't try to escape from the universe or your tendency, our tendency to try to escape from the universe, to find a nirvana that's sort of quiet and peaceful and apart from all this hullabaloo, you know, <laughs> is undermined completely by the realization of the nature of reality. And you realize that the wisdom of the nature of reality leads you into compassion for the beings who are here. And the little bit of, of bliss that you get out of understanding that as reality whatever degree it may be, or a great, great amount of bliss that you may get, depending, then that channels right away into, it flows right away toward beings who are feeling very deprived and very upset and very anxious, and how to make them happy. Do you know what I mean? There's no, it's kind of no removal. You know, the tremendous, the sensitive person, the spiritual seeker, the tremendous wish to escape you know, that is reflected in things like nirvana or becoming tattvam azi, you know, the Hindus, or mystics, you know, uh, mystics in the theistic religions who want to go into some vast space of God's heart and all this kind of thing. It's this huge escapist thing, you know. Yeah. Whereas non-dualism is like, it's right here, you know. Well, let's go into it a little more, Robert, because I think there's a lot of confusion when people hear the term non-duality. I'd love to understand what you mean when you use that word, non-duality. Right, right. Well, I, I hope, I mean, I don't pretend to be enlightened, so I don't think I fully understand it myself yet, but it seems to go deeper and deeper on the other hand. But on, on a surface level or on a level of, of the great teachings that are there, it's quite clear, actually. But what's, what's amazing to me is how resistant people, even Tibetan lamas, are to this idea that Nirvana, you know, Nagarjuna's great statement that there is not the slightest iota of difference between Nirvana and Samsara. They are right here. You know, Nirvana is right here in what seems to the unenlightened to be Samsara. And therefore, that means the Buddha is right here. Actually, the Buddha becomes everything. And to a Buddha, this is all bliss, which, of course, sounds is, is so difficult. The idea that, you know, even somebody blowing up or dying or, you know, being burned or whatever it is, is still indivisible from nirvana. But they are doing some agony because of their lack of, they're out of ignorance because not knowing what their true nature is. They have put themselves in a state of agony. But, and so 
and, and, a, and an enlightened being sees their agony without diminishing its reality. In other words, doesn't just turn away from it. But on the other hand, simultaneously sees everything, including that agony, including hell, actually, as the bubbles of bliss in an ocean of bliss. And that's the kind of cognitive dissonance that the ordinary mind cannot get around. But even knowing it by inference, uh, which one can do, and one can get one's mind about that, even knowing it by inference is wonderful because it, it puts the whole power into, into compassion. The whole power of the sort of wisdom of transcendental experience, etc., all this kind of thing we hear about, about transcending and doing this and that, all comes down to whatever, you know, helps the sensitivity of sentient beings to find happiness and freedom from suffering. That's what, the, what it's about. Do you know what I mean? And there's no escape from that. You know? Now, you know, it, that is so radical in a way that, for example, when Buddha taught Theravada Buddhism, which he said himself should be the main Buddhism for 400 years after his lifetime. And he also taught Mahayana Buddhism, at least we Mahayanas think so. Um, but he said, don't, this is not a general teaching for everybody. For another, after four or 500 years, it will be, but right now, not. Because right now, people need the idea that nirvana is a place they can get away from the misery to, to, to the cessation of misery is a place. They need to feel that. And they need to strive to achieve that. The, the, the tendency in the human being for escapism is so strong, and the inability to understand even awful thing as really ultimately bliss is so difficult, and it also can be so misunderstood as to, to lead to some kind of callous disregard for the suffering of others that we don't want to spread that teaching for a couple of centuries until people are ready for it. And that, so that to me is... is um, it's what I'm always working on, you know, because, uh, you know, like I had an experience um, that I can tell you to maybe make it more clear in a personal example. When I was first studying Buddhism with my great teacher, the Reverend Geshe Wangyal, late Geshe Wangyal, Mongolian Lama who studied in Tibet for 35 years. And um, when I would come to meditation sections in the teachings of Nagarjuna, I read a book, he read mm -hmm. me a book in Tibet by Nagarjuna. And I learned the language while learning the teaching of Nagarjuna's book. And it was a mind, I mean, every page was like a golden letter, and it, it like was a release for me. It was such a wonderful thing. But when I would get to the meditation parts, and then I would immediately get into that, and he had like a psych, uh, uh, telepathic radar, that Lama. He was so great that I would reach these points where I was about to sort of go into a quiet space probably one of the dhyanas or another, and the body would become less relevant, and I would just be floating. And he would inevitably show up, and he would say, hey, what are you doing? Even three in the morning, say, you're having trouble sleeping. Me too. Let's have some yogurt. <laughs> I would sneak out in the woods outside the monastery to try to, like, uh -huh. get into a space outside of everything, you know? And he would interrupt it every time. And finally, I was in, in the exasperation. I would say, like, how come you're not letting me meditate, you know? And he would say, oh, you're not ready for that yet. You have a lot more to learn. And he would come up with a thing like that. But he wouldn't articulate his reasoning as much as I could articulate it now. And then later, I did a lot of meditating, but I was not, later on, the place where I was, I wasn't really so tempted to really disappear and become addicted to a quietized state. 
you know, like a trance state or something like that, you know, which I think I would have been had I gone into it at that first blush, you know. And um, that's what I mean. See, non-duality, like in Tibet, for example, after some radical teachings of non-duality, uh, some other lamas got in and said, no, no, emptiness is not really empty. Emptiness is nirvana, and it really is apart from the world. It's separate from the world. And you, when you get there, then you're Buddha, and you don't need to worry about the world. You sort of, everything happens automatically, and everybody's saved automatically. You don't have to really have, you know, worry about it. And, um, you know, in other words, Buddhahood itself is an escape. And, um, you know, that there's a, they, they can have some places in some texts where they can find ground leverage for that. But basically, that's a terrible misunderstanding. And these are important lamas who are doing that and who really don't like the idea of this radical non-duality of the Buddha, you know. And even, and then in Hinduism, you have Vedanta, you know, Advaita. Yeah. And Advaita doesn't really mean non-duality. It means undoubledness. The Dvaita, the ta part, is a past passive participle. So it really means that reality is one without a second. So in a way, it's a, it again, it's a kind of crushing of the relative reality where beings are left behind suffering, rather than seeing nirvana as entangled with all the beings and having to bring them with you, like the Bodhisattva way, you know, which is where, you know, the, the Brahmins didn't want to do that. They wanted to keep their high Brahmin status. They thought that, you know, they tasted these great, great vast experiences of being one with Brahma. And they sort of said, it's all one, doesn't matter that somebody, you know, that's just a dream, you know, that the people are suffering and we don't have to, Brahma will take care, God will take care of it, you know, type of thing. So that's where, that's why non-duality is so challenging, true non-duality, which means that freedom has to be right here while totally committed to other beings and totally connected with them. There's no freedom apart from that. You know, that's a delusion. That's a relative state of temporary freedom. But the full final freedom, it has to embrace all of the beings or it's, or it's not the genuine one. Now, I think it's helpful that you brought up Advaita and this idea of one without a second, because I think many people who hear the term non-duality in today's culture come to it through an Advaita teacher or teaching of some kind. And I think that is part of what's generating a lot of the confusion. Right. There's no real respect or interest in relative life because it's just oneness, oneness, right. oneness. So I think and that, another yeah. concrete example that might help, which recently happened to me, as I say, I don't pretend to fully understand all of this. If I did, I probably would maintain you'd have a thunderous silence for an hour, <laughs> like people at UT. But but I'm, it goes deeper and deeper. And I was in Switzerland briefly. I had some reason I had to meet His Holiness, you know, who was giving a big teaching somewhere between Geneva and Zurich, near Lausanne someplace. And, um, and there were about 8,000, 9,000 people in a giant auditorium. And I had to meet, have a meeting with him about some, some later trip or something. So I wasn't there for the whole teaching, unfortunately. But I got there for the one part of it. And um, I was sitting on stage because I didn't have a proper seat. So I was there with the lamas on stage on the side, you know. And His Holiness was doing this thing that he does about how he's always emphasizing how people have to learn something and they have to, you know, change their mind initially by learning some new view of the world. And then later, and then they do ethical practice and action and compassionate deeds. And then they, and then they meditate. So it's sort of a sequence like that. But the key is learning something. He always makes a big emphasis on it. So then he, he translated this verse 
it's a very famous one where Buddha says to the uh, his disciples, he says, you know, disciples, um, mendicants, uh, wise people accept my words after thorough examination with their critical wisdom, like a goldsmith buys gold after melting it, cutting it, and rubbing it on a touchstone to make sure it's genuine. Mm-hmm. And, that, and such wise people do not accept what I said just because I said it. You know, Buddha said so, so that's, that must be true. No, they, they chew it up in their own critical thinking, and they really work it over and either reject it if they don't like it or make it their own. And as he was giving the description of that, of how they have to listen, very, therefore learn very actively and use their mind, he, he leaned forward. He was on one of those Tibetan teaching thrones sort of things, you know, that the people had, the hosts had made for him, you know, mm-hmm. and the Lamas were on the stage, and then there were this vast host of people. And he leaned forward on that thing, and he was like saying, and I can just see Shakyamuni Buddha, he said, begging these mendicants, these monk students of his, to really listen carefully and not just be dogmatic, oh, Buddha said, and then that's what he said, you know, and passively accept it, but really think it through and make it an understanding in their own mind and and deal with their own inner doubts about whatever it was that they heard. And he said, I can see Shakyamuni begging his students to listen actively, and he was leaning forward in this way where he was begging the audience to actually do the learning, and he was, and the posture, the body language was like he, the teacher, was serving those students. He wasn't the big authority telling them where it was at, if you follow me, Mm -hmm. even though the stage was set like that. And I was looking across, you know, because I was on the side, and I saw a bunch of gurus, some lamas and some Zen people, some Christians, because it's almost like multi-faith stuff, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and different kinds of people, some swamis. There were a bunch of people on the stage across the other side, and they were looking alarmed. <laughs> they were kind of digging it, but they were also looking a little freaked out, I noticed, because he was upending this idea of the teacher as the high authority. Do you follow me? I certainly the do. The guru as yeah. the big boss, you know, the big daddy, you know. And you just listen to the guru and you follow the guru and you'll be fine, you know. And I think that spiritual teachers like to feel they're higher than the student, you know. And there, there's a lot of stuff in Indian patriarchal culture, you know, the word guru even, you know, it means a heavy. It comes from the word that means literally heavy as opposed to light, you know, guru. And so it's like a heavy weight of an authority from within a patriarchal society. You know, then the guru is like the father of the disciple and the disciple is supposed to be obedient, you know. But Buddhism overturns that and they say that the teacher is a friend, the Kalyana Mitra, a virtuous friend, an inspiring friend. And it's sort of, you know, could because you, the one who are going to understand, you're the important one. If the guy understands more, then he's there serving you to try to elicit your understanding in yourself. He can't give you his understanding by just giving you some orders. And, um, and the Dalai Lama really lives that, you know. And I think that in the history, why people have resisted the radical non-dualist teachings and kept insisting that emptiness is somewhere else or nirvana is at some other place and basic thing is to get out of this world because the world sucks, you know. Uh, and that's what Buddha taught, really. You know, people, a lot of people say that uh, is because they just... And then if they have an experience, as if they leave their body, they leave the world, they then come back. You know, there's a certain person I won't mention by name who goes around doing kind of silly things, you know, and has caused some damage, and but says that they can do whatever they want because they realize emptiness. And so, in other words, I'm enlightened. Mm-hmm. And that, 
that's a disease, you know. If you know, if you think you're enlightened, then you rationalize everything that you do, and of course you think you're higher than other people who are unenlightened. And then actually you're caught in what Zen, Zen has a great expression for that. They say you're caught in the demon ghost cave. So, but you think you're in this high place where, well, yes, you disappeared at one time, but now you're back, kind of kindly helping others about. And then when you die, you'll finally disappear into Pari Nirvana, and uh, and you're totally cool. So meanwhile, people should do what you say, and you can do whatever you like. And that's so misleading and so dangerous and difficult. All the scandals and difficulties we've had in spiritual groups come from gurus who think they're enlightened, and they can just break every rule and act like crazy, you know. Okay, Robert. So this, I think you're making a very important point about non-duality when it's distorted and then turned into this position of being better than the higher than guru. I think it's a really important point. But what I want to circle back around to is, you know, I began by asking you what teachings or texts have meant the most to you personally and changed you. And I'm taking from your answer about non-duality that there's a kind of respect and reverence for everything in the physical world. But I don't want to over-interpret. I don't want to over-interpret how this no, no, teaching of true. non-duality... Physical and, yeah. physical and mental, and but basically the world of other beings, you know. I mean, physical... Physical in Greek, I think physics just means reality, you know. It doesn't necessarily mean material. It means whatever really happens, I think, originally physical men. And, you know, emptiness is physical in that sense, you know. And uh, I argue that the Buddha was a physicist, was a scientist. I'm totally into that. And But all of this comes from my slowly deepening, rather poor, not complete understanding of non-duality in the sense that I myself... You know, have this kind of escapist psychology, you know, where I want to get away from difficulties. You know, we all do, you know. And actually, Buddha's analysis, the second noble truth, you know, his analysis of what's wrong with the unenlightened person is that that person thinks that their real self is a kind of identity that's a sort of independent, separate thing in the depth of their heart or something, like a soul thing, but a soul that never changes, that's sort of an absolute, you know, that's apart from all of the plasma, you know, and even apart from all the functions of the mind, and it's sort of this, this witness or register, and you get all different soul theories that are like that, and Buddha's great insight, and so that's the sickness, it's a kind of psychosis, that what I really am is something that isn't here, <laughs> because it's an absolute, so it's not part of this relative mess that's me, and so that's what leads to all this anti-body, anti-society, escapist conceptions of the absolute, or even the projection of God as the ultimate psychotic, actually. That is to say, someone who creates the world, but he's not in the world. And so he makes the world for whatever reason nobody can quite figure out, and he's not part of it, you know, because of the absolute otherness of God, you know, that kind of yeah. doctrine. Yeah. And uh, that's a psychotic God in the sense that he's doing all these things which are impacting people, causally speaking, and yet he's not there. Really, he's immune to the consequence of doing that, which is how we would define some person who is a psychopath, actually. As, as Shelley once said about the, the normal monotheistic idea about God, that God was some kind of great you know, monster. You know. Kelly and she, Shelley and Keats used to write stuff like that, which I appreciated. And, uh, but that, but you know, there, I think there are nice gods. I myself, I, I don't think God is like that, but that's a projection of this psychotic structure. So, which I don't think I'm, since I don't claim to be enlightened, I, I mean, I would never dare, 
I think that um, I still have some vestige of that sense that there's some sort of separate me someplace, you know. And so then these kind of concepts of nirvana, like a Theravada concept of nirvana, a dualistic Buddhist concept of nirvana, that is someplace outside the world of life, which is just samsara, that's a projection of that a wishful thinking that that inner space inside that's the real me is the really final destination, and I can withdraw there and hide from people. And I think it was the form of Buddhism that Buddha taught to the male chauvinist Brahmins, who were the dominant ascetics and seekers of his day. They were the educated, privileged people who had, some of whom got tired of doing rituals, you know, in the Vedic ceremonies, and wanted to actually find the nature of reality. And they were chauvinist, and they were, they were psychotic in that sense of having this separate self, and they wanted to get away from the world. They didn't want to have to be in the kitchen with their wives. They didn't respect the women. Those early Sankhya teaching, for example, you know, Sankhya yoga teaching, the, the, the word purusha for the soul is a word for the male. And maya is, and prakriti, you know, nature is female, and she traps the soul in suffering. And the idea is to get the male soul away from the female. I mean, it's, it's so chauvinist, you can't even believe it. And Buddhism, and Theravada Buddhism appeals to them, actually, as well, but leads them out of the idea by the teaching of selflessness. And when they get out, when they have an experience of being out of the world, they somehow realize that this isn't really a place I can stay. This is just my experience of not having that kind of a self. And then it heals them and leads them back into the world and the world of compassion, you know. So, so that's that's so. What, so I'm not avoiding what personally does, deals with me. This non-duality constantly forces me to get back to the ground level and listen to try to listen to my wife and my children and my colleagues and try not to lose my temper and try not to run away and act like I'm all holy and spiritual and try to deal with reality and be remain engaged with it and somehow bring a little bit of a feeling of bliss, a little bit of feeling of something extra special about it, nirvanic, a kind of tinge of nirvana uh, to it, so as to not let it get you down, you know. But, uh, but to resist that temptation to get away from it all, and thereby keep investing. It's like keep investing your profit back in the business. <laughs> and the business is the bodhisattva business of making this a better world, you know not just seeking my own meditative pleasure, you know. Now, you, you mentioned bringing a, a taste of bliss, if you will, or a, a sense of bliss to all of our, our life, to everything that's going on. Tell me a little bit about how that works for you. Well, then, then, then we're talking Tantra there, you know, the wonderful, brilliant, marvelous, innermost teaching of Buddha, uh, uh, which, which is uh, an excel yoga Tantra particularly. And, uh, and there they get into this thing that the same emptiness, the same non-dual emptiness and relativity, like I should always say, the same non-dual, you know, samsara, nirvana, the wisdom and compassion, etc., is mobilized to be understood by the subtle consciousness, the super subtle consciousness. In other words, when you understand it inferentially, which is important to do, it isn't like, you know, reasoning and inference is useless at all. It's very important. And when you understand inferentially, it's still the subjectivity you're bringing to it is your, what they call your coarse mental subjectivity. And to get down into your visceral understanding, you have to get down to the super subtle consciousness, which is actually bliss. You have to understand it with the bliss of your deeper nature. And that bliss is not just, uh, it is 
sexual sexuality is powerful because it touches that bliss, but it isn't just sexual bliss. Actually, that would be a mistake. People who misunderstand tantra and think it's just like having a lot of uh, a lot of orgasms or something is incorrect because the ordinary genitally organized orgasm or the procreative orgasm or whatever, the armored orgasm, depending on which system we talk about it in terms of, is not that. When the winds and the drops go into the central channel, there's this total nervous system thing which is not dissipated and which connects to what I believe, you know, in Buddhist medicine, for example, is the actual health of the cells of a being. Why do our atoms hold together in the form of molecules and DNA and, and healthy cells, etc.? Because they like each other. They fit into each other. And that's, the kind, that's what bliss does. Bliss wants to expand and connect things. It, it melts into them, you could say. And so, so that's why it's so stupid of someone to think that they realized emptiness as if it was an object they understood with their subjectivity and they mastered it and they own that. And they own that understanding when the only way you can realize emptiness or you can call realize the emptiness is when you lose yourself in reality and you melt into it. And when you do that in a, in a deep meditative state where it's with your super subtle mind, that is to say you realize it not just with your brain, you realize it with your whole nervous system, with your fingertips, with your, with your fingernails, with your bones, you know, every cell melts into clear light, you could call it, you know. And that bliss, that's the bliss of, that everything is made of in the tantric vision, you know. That's the bliss, that, that's, that's why nirvana and samsara are the same, because in a way samsara is made of nirvana from a point of view. And uh, when you fully understand that, of course, you can't fully understand that unless you become a perfect Buddha, which I, again, as I say, I don't pretend to be, but you, you get into that world and you feel the reverberations of it, so to speak. You see the art of it, you know, you see the beautiful forms of it. You meet the, the, the great masters who really themselves have melted in this way and who therefore are completely blissfully present in an ordinary manner as well. But then on the other hand, there's a very big misunderstanding that some people have who tried to get all enlightened, you know, and then they found themselves somehow still getting losing their temper, still sort of bothered by this and that. And then they act like, oh, enlightenment is just hanging around town and everything is all ordinary. You know, they misunderstand that Zen thing about, you know, mountains are mountains, then mount, there are no mountains and no rivers, and then again mountains and mountains and there are rivers and rivers. Or, you know, first you hew wood and draw water, then you don't do it, then you do do it. So that it's just being really ordinary is enlightenment, and that's wrong. Being ordinary as a blissful with ordinary is now seen as a total field of bliss is what enlightenment is. It's not just some aftermath where you just resign yourself to just be that there is no different thing than the ordinary thing. That the people that there are some people promoting that kind of idea. That's really not correct either. So I think the real thing is where the real exciting thing is whatever you know. You know, bliss is actually our deeper nature. Human beings are sensitive. The reason we are sensitive is that we have chosen a life form that is close to bliss. You know, we're mammals. That means we take our own young. We, we, some higher form of the mammal, which I consider the female to be, opens her body for a stranger. Some, they have no idea who's that person. <laughs> And yet they share their body with that and their bloodstream and their vitamins and calcium and what have you 
with with a total stranger for nine or ten months, and then they then they would become the slave of that stranger for ten years, and that's a really altruistic way to behave, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why and that's why men are more backward. They would they couldn't dream of doing things like that. They wouldn't even want someone to stand on their toe, much less is live in their belly. And um, but this is all because bliss is our true nature. Is it, Buddha's real view. Even in the Four Noble Truths of Theravada Buddhism, he's telling people that, that they just don't hear it. You know, they get all involved in the truth of suffering. Oh, I'm suffering, I don't know. I'm so happy Buddha recognizes my suffering. Oh, I'm really pleased. He, he, he recognizes it, but he, what his main message is, is the Third Noble Truth. You can get free of that suffering. You know, you understand the cause of it, and you undo the cause of it, and you'll be blissful. Because that, and that's reality, actually. The suffering is based on ignorance, and it's when you're stuck in unreality, you suffer. So, so anyway, you know, whatever I glean from that, and you get encouraging me to like spend a minute looking at the flower, or being in the moment, or whatever, you know, that's that's where I feel so reinforced by the beautiful, brilliant teachings of of the you know the Guya Samaja Tantra or the Chakra Sambar Tantra or the Kala Chakra Tantra, you know, they're just so Vajra Yogini Tantra, they're so awesome. They really are. You know, mentioning, you know, whether it's being with a flower for a minute, part of what I'm curious about is how in the midst of your everyday life you experience, you tune to, if you will, these experiences, this well, ha- you do, halo. You know, yeah. you, of course, if you're a really, really great tantric practitioner, which I don't claim to be, you sort of carry this mandala with you all the time, you know, in your heart, and you you see the world this way, but you do it in a non-psychotic way. That is to say, you don't do that where you don't see how others see it, which is, which is in the ordinary way that they see it. So you're not like, like I know some people who say, oh, I'm a nishid, I'm a tantric, you know, I don't wash dishes. Or, you know, like, don't give me a parking ticket or don't ask me to do this and the other because I'm here in my mandala. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. That's creating a big duality, you know. So the idea is, you know, you you do some retreats. I mean, ideally, you know, I, I haven't taken like a three-year retreat. And I think if I had tried to take it, I don't approve of people who take it right away when they first get into Buddhism. There are some people that think it's just great and they shove all people into that. I don't agree with that. I think they first should learn something for many years or at least three or four years, and then in their late 20s or early 30s, if they get started soon, maybe do a really big retreat with a great master who thinks they're ready for it, and uh, and really go full into those mandalas in a, you know, withdraw for a long time. I did not do that. I had about a year while I was a monk, and then I do short month here and month there. And But in a way, one of the things, I'm very lucky to be a professor and a, te- as a, and a teacher because I get to read and reread and read to others and share with others these different things. And then you go back over the same thing again and again, and you really, it goes deeper and deeper, you know. And that's really a privilege to have that connect to your livelihood. So the more you can align your livelihood with what you love, if you have to have a livelihood and you're not supported just to be a, 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 you know, a meditator or a practitioner all the time, then, um, then that's great. And but then you, we do have wonderful people like Matthew Ricard and others who, who they can take six months. I don't think he ever did a three-year retreat. Not that he said, but his living with those llamas for so long was almost virtually the same. And um, and he does periodically take a few months retreats, you know. But then of course he produces these huge vast tomes, so I think he's writing a lot of his retreat. 
So in a way, your mind can be in a retreat when you live in the in the teaching. You know, in a way, that's that's what's really good. You also learn a lot by teaching someone else. You find out what you really think, or you make your thinking more deeply when you have to explain it to somebody. Because then, if you if you if you remain fresh and you don't get stuck in some idea of like, oh, I already knew that and I said it yesterday, and you keep thinking about it as you look at it again, then you learn more and you get deeper. And that's really great. And I think there's no limit to it. I look forward to next life. I hope to. My, the president of Colombia told the Dalai Lama, my great disappointment, that um, they don't have a reincarnation system in an endowed faculty chair. <laughs> so I can't, I, can't, I, can't, I can't reincarnate in my chair. It's really backward of America, really. But, uh, I mean, I don't know if I'd be capable of doing it, but maybe with his holiness his help, I could do it. I don't know. But then I have to work my way up from the trenches next life, if I get to be human, even. I don't know. I don't know, Tammy. I miss you in Boulder. By the way, Tammy, I yeah. miss you guys in Boulder. You're gonna have my to come visit. Eddie, come visit. My friend Eddie is there, you know, and then there and my and Richard my beloved Richard Freeman is there and there's a lot of Dharma people there and uh, you know, Woodstock is sort of the eastern coast Boulder. But I do miss getting out there sometimes. But maybe when I retire after next year or year after that, or twenty nineteen, maybe I'll spend some time in Boulder. You guys have a great time out there, right? We all want you to come visit us. So for, for the entire town of Boulder, I'm speaking here. Oh, that's nice. Thank yeah, you. Right. Okay, now Robert, you you mentioned about having a profession that keeps you close to the teachings, and I read something an, an article online that you wrote where you talked about how it's a potential career path for people to actually, instead of becoming, quote-unquote, spiritual teachers in the way we think of spiritual teachers, that mm-hmm. it, that you were recommending that perhaps people look at professions like psychotherapy, where they're helping yes. engaging people in their lives, but not getting yes. into all the traps of becoming a spiritual teacher. And I, I wanted to hear more about that, what you think the traps are of becoming a spiritual well, that teacher. Came up, that yeah. came up when I was uh, visiting in Bhutan once with the great uh, Nyoshu Ken Rinpoche, who was a teacher of uh, Surya Das and a lot of other people. And also he was um, he was the teacher of uh, Tukupema Wangel, who runs a lot of retreatants in France. Who, you know, he has those big retreat centers in France. And I was saying to Tukupema Wangal, I was saying that I, it had to do with some people who were friends of mine who'd taken three-year retreats and who were really not that happy afterwards. And they didn't really know what to do with themselves, kind of, you know, which is not everyone. A lot of the people who've taken three-year retreats have, have, have done well. And someone like Surya Das, who I think had six years or something, he's become a teacher and he's had ups and downs in that way. But I think he's done a fairly good job, I think, overall. He had a few lapses, perhaps, you know, there were a few things, but nothing too noisy, nothing really horrible like some of the gurus. And, um, and he's a nice guy and um, good sense of humor. And um, so anyway, I was worried about it. So I said to Tukupema Wangyal and Yoshiki, I said, why couldn't you guys, instead of jumping these people into these three-year retreats right away, when, they, when you get someone who you feel is a really correct candidate for that, you know, we raise some money, you know, if you join me, we could probably raise some money to give them some scholarships and have them go to Naropa for two years or three years or to CIIS in California, or maybe we could get some conventional college to take them in a graduate school if they have a BA. And then, and then they do the coursework, two, three years of it, learn the languages and learn the history and the context. And then they come for the three-year retreat already knowing that stuff. 
and they really it becomes field work from the American point of view, and they do they do it through a three year retreat, and then after the three year retreat, they either write a PhD thesis and become a professor or an academic teacher, or they get a psych degree at Naropa or something or CIS or someplace like that, and then they can have a career, and their enlightenment that they've gained in the three year retreat can be understood by people who are in a non-Buddhist society like America or Europe. And otherwise, you see, in Tibet, when you had someone on a three-year retreat, A, they'd already grown up in the Tibetan context, and they had a Tibetan cultural sense, and they had been educated in Tibetan, and they knew the Dharma in a certain level. Then they do a deep meditation. Then they become lamas, and then they can teach in any monastery, and they're invited. Some will go back and continue retreating, but many, they'll be respected, and they can teach in a monastery. They'd be kind of Rinpoche from having had the three-year retreat. But in the West, these people can't do that. They, oh, I had a three-year retreat. Well, that's exotic and amazing, people will say. But, you know, I need some carpentry done over here. Or <laughs> what can you do my taxes or whatever? You know, they, people don't know how to, how to handle it. Whereas if they were a professor or an instructor of some kind or a, a healer, then people would go pro- approach them that way, and then their enlightenment would emerge to be really of great benefit. They'd be a great teacher. They'd be a great uh, uh, psychotherapist. And uh, like Ken McLeod is an example. He was a Kalo Rinpoche student, did retreats, but he also has some sort of California psych degree. And he has his, his, his base relationship with people is as a therapist. And he has also Dharma students, but he doesn't depend upon being professionally enlightened, if you if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You know, he can just serve them in in a context that's understandable to to the ordinary person in the society. So it it secures against the danger of the guy, somebody depending on having a lot of disciples and having them work for that person and abuse of power, abuse of money. You know, all this stuff that has been happening wildly and actually happened in Asia. It isn't just that we Americans get into that. It happened in Asia. It happened in Tibet. They were disreputable teachers who misused their status, you know, definitely in the history, you know, no question. So that was that that came out of that context that I just I said that I thought that would be good. And um, and then and of course, nobody ever did that formally. But I think some people informally have done that. And I've noticed a few people going on like someone I know now who's been helping me a little bit as an assistant, but is going off for a three-year retreat soon, has an MA in environmental science from Stanford already, and, you know, is going to be able to package herself at the end of the retreat um, in some good way. And whatever she learns in the retreat about her mind and her psyche and her good personality and her, you know, mood control and whatever will be help her in whatever her profession will be. The point is that this kind of white person can't, can't be a lama in the Tibetan social context. It seems like you're pointing to some evolution, if you will, of the spiritual teacher in the West, that there's some new way that this function needs to be expressed or could be expressed. Well, I don't think it's really new in in the sense that I think the great teacher always in Buddhist history has been the servant of the student. And it's just that those more evolved societies, which are more... The Asian societies were more advanced than our society. I'm sorry to say that. That's my my annoying message from my my America First colleagues. That we are actually backward. You know, Europe, Euro-American society is relatively backward compared to ancient India, and compared to not colonialized India. Of course, they were shoved in the dust, but by both the Muslim and European conquests. But 
and they're just recovering bit by bit now. But uh, but you know they were more you know they were more generous. They would support a lot of mendicants, you know, and people on retreats and monasteries, and etc. And they got into demilitarizing pretty much. And they have lots of you know, and they and they 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 live the Dharma more in their culture, you know. And so there you can serve as a lama, you know. You can serve as a guru. You can serve as a mahasiddha, you know. But although some, a lot of the Mahasiddhas were t- weavers, tailors, one of them was a wrestler, one of them was a king, one was a minister, you know. And there were some monks who were Mahasiddhas, but the great adepts, you know, of India, they were not all high people, you know, being worshipped by other people. Uh, they they also maintained some relationships in society. So I'm just saying that in the, in our society, there has to be a channel through which you can be recognized as serving, so that people will approach you seeking your service. And, um, you know, I wrote a, I did a series of lectures in the 80s in uh, San Francisco. It was not published. It was going to be published by Parallax Press. But after they heard the lectures, they didn't, weren't sure they wanted to publish them because it was called Buddhism Without Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Lectures. And actually, everybody loved the lectures, and I loved them, giving them. I enjoyed it. It was a great, I loved the California audience, too. But, but um, meaning that Kabat-Zinn is great, you know, with mindfulness based stress reduction where he's not demanding people be Buddhists to help their own mind and psyche, you know. And uh, they're good at, there are Buddhist doctors, Tibetan ones running around. Ayurvedic people are half Buddhist because Hinduism is half Buddhism. And uh and they're be and acupuncture people, they sort of come out of Buddhist powers kind of culture and context. And uh Dharma Center meditation teachers they're performing a certain service. And um they're not, you know, some may think they are missionarizing and converting America to Buddhism, but uh, that's probably uh, not a very good idea because it will just generate a lot of hostility from Christians and Jews and secularists, you know. And it's probably better to serve, like they always did. And when you serve people in a society, you have to do it in, to some extent in the context they expect you to serve them. That's, so it's not really rocket science. It's not too new, in other words. It's just adapting to this society. And on the other hand, of course, gradually, because we do have religious pluralism, formally speaking, in America, you know, there will be Buddhist, religious Buddhist organizations that will be there and be more recognized. There are four or five million, they're more Buddhist than Episcopalians, I understand. Now, the high Episcopalians have a lesser number than the Buddhists. <laughs> and, and I actually think most of the so-called cultural creatives, I don't get depressed by the 55 million or 60 million evangelists, you know, fundamentalists. I don't get too depressed by them because there are 55 or 60 million cultural creatives, according to the sociologists. And most of them do yoga. They do some kind of meditation. They like Buddhism or Hinduism or Taoism. And so they're sort of, without formally, nominally, like acting like card-carrying anything, they're sort of adopting that kind of sensibility, you know. Mm-hmm. They care about the environment and they want organic food and they don't want crazy oil companies, et cetera, but of course we haven't figured out how to control them. But they are good all good people, you know. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com 
backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, Robert, I want to pull something out. You talked about your next life and, you know, would you come back to the... Columbia professorship and continue and, and that there's no, right. no, no in doubt. Maybe, right. Okay. Maybe Naropa or maybe UCSF or something. UCLA, I don't know. Okay. Not Columbia. But one of the I love New York. One of the projects that you have created with Sounds True is an audio series called Liberation Upon Hearing in the Between uh-huh. Living with the Tibetan yes. Book of the Dead. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this. You often talk about reincarnation. And what I'd like to understand better is your understanding of when we die, what reincarnates. Right. So what that is, is the super subtle body-mind, which the mind of it is the mind is the clear light of, of bliss the blissful merging with the clear light. So it's the mind of bliss. And the, the body of it is the pure, the super subtle energy that is the vehicle of that bliss, like a sort of matrix body's super subtle energy. You know, what they called in the first, the first Matrix movie, digital residual self-image, which is like a very subtle energy that, it, that holds the consciousness of the clear light of bliss. And that's what gets reincarnated, and it's not a fixed thing. It's not like a barcode or a fixed Tammy or Bob identity. It's a, it's a continuum. It's a thread of, of, of awareness, of blissful awareness. And, uh, and anyway, it's also in a way kind of ultimately it's indescribable because in a way it seems like a micro thing, and yet it's a macro. It's as vast as the universe. And anybody who's fully conscious from that level is, it has to be a Buddha or enlightened, you know, actually. Another name for it is Buddha nature, actually. But again, we mustn't think that's a fixated thing, like a little, little mini Buddha homunculus or something. It's very hard to kind of describe, but it's a thing where mind and matter, matter mind and body are one thing, actually. And, you, and therefore, but, but therefore, you know, materialistic reductionism can be useful. Buddhist science doesn't mind it except when it becomes a dogma, but there can also be mentalistic reductionism. So you can, it can, you can say all matter is mind. You can go either direction because all theories are just theories and reality itself is ultimately inexpressible and indescribable. So that's what continues. And the thing about it is, that's great about it, is that and then that's a really big thing. And actually, I, that I consider a little bit success in my life personally, in that in the old days when I used to present to audiences and people and students about the scientific proposal of the continuum of lives of living beings, of an individual continuum that they have, it's chitta-santana, even the exoteric Buddhists call it chitta-santana. When I used to do that, I used to get a lot of resistance, and you still can get from materialist scientists, what's your evidence there's such a thing as former and future life and all this kind of thing they'll say. But actually, nowadays, when I dialogue, even in large groups, I don't get much resistance. And I find that people as a whole are more ready to deal with it, actually, and are less scared of it. But although it is scary, the reason that materialists are so fanatical in their materialistic dogmas is that they're scared of a future life because they, it, it's a loss of control. They don't know what is going to happen to them. You know, they don't have a good Book of the Dead understanding. 
and they, they don't know what's going to happen to them when they lose control of their body and their senses. And then like a dream, it's like they don't, have, they don't know how to lucidly dream. So they, they can have a nightmare in a dream, or they might have a pleasant dream, but they, but they have no control over it. And so that they, they sense that, that, that some further state, the between state, is going to be like a dream state. And if they haven't learned to control their unconscious in this life, they, that their unconscious will drag them somewhere where they might not like end up being. You know? So they're very scared of it. But the, but the point is, my point nowadays that I make in, a, in, a, that I make in that tape that we made, that you so lovely and nicely made for, with me, and, and that is that the, the evidence for former and future life is one of the main ones is the memory of people have of previous lives, which are quite widespread. There's lots of people, a lot of children have that memory. And they can try to re- debunk that. And they can try it in different specific cases. They can try to say, this doesn't seem genuine to me, or in principle, it doesn't seem genuine. They can say that if they examine it. But they can't say there's no evidence, because that's evidence, you know. And then the great thing that I have, I have I discovered to emphasize lately is the seeming scientific dogma that you're, you'll be just asleep forever when you die. That is to say, you will become nothing nothingness. You will go into oblivion where your your continuum will be nothingness. I.e. I. that something, some energy process will become nothing. There's no evidence for that. And not only is there no evidence for that, but there never will be. Carl Sagan or Daniel Dennett after they die are not we're going to report back in hey guys, we don't exist anymore. It's proof. <laughs> There's no one ever going to do that. They're not going to be able to do that. So therefore, in principle, there cannot be ever any evidence that that the law of thermodynamics, that there's no destruction of energy, that energy always continues into another form, which they will deal with regarding to matter and energy, but somehow they make the human consciousness, because they're so scared of the church and the Inquisition, for which I don't blame them, you know, the way they burned Giordano Bruno at the stake and they muzzled Galileo and all this bunch of lunatic religious people. So I don't blame them being scared of that. But still, they just came up with this blind faith article that I'm going to be nothing after death, which means that essentially right now I'm nothing because I could take a bullet and put it through my brain, pull the trigger, and I'd, be, I'd revert to my deepest state, which is nothing. So that means these people are running around with a little little vial of nihilism in their heart, which is no wonder that depression is, a, is an epidemic in this country. People who think they know what reality is, those psychotic scientists, you know, they don't. So that I really am happy about in that I think that it, why? Because, you know, in ancient time, the Hindus, Jains, Buddhists, you know, Ajivakas, whatever different religions existed, spiritual traditions existed in India, they all agreed, they disagreed about a lot of things, but they all agreed that the Indian materialists of the time, you know, who said there's no future life and they're just living to enjoy this life, if they ever got in charge of society, they would make a mess. Because it, th- that worldview makes you irresponsible. It makes you where there's ultimately no consequence to your life. If you are Stalin and you kill hundreds of millions of people, or Mao, or tens of millions of people, you, there's no consequence to you. And the people, even once they're dead, they don't even regret having lost their lives because they don't exist either. 
So it's a very, you know, the, the Sam Harris and those people who go berserk about the destructiveness of the world religions should really take a better look at materialism and communism and, and how many people have they have killed, actually, in the modern period. And uh, it's not a small number. And uh, if we, and finally, if our scientific colleagues, if people in the natural sciences and all our universities and our laboratories and our corporations, if they succeed in polluting the you know, global warming and messing up the planetary environment totally or having a nuclear war or something, then they will have been so irresponsible as to destroy all life on this green earth. And so they, they you know, they, uh, that's the danger of this no, after me, the deluge attitude about my life. I just care about my pleasure in this life. And after that, who cares? I'm not here. Like George Bush actually said, W said to Bob Woodward when he was asked by Bob Woodward, wasn't he worried about his grandchildren thinking he had the bad reputation of polluting the world and making Texas polluted and, you know, destroying the environment and being an oil man and all this. And he said, Oh, I don't care about that. He said, I won't be around if I have a bad reputation. I won't be there to, to worry about it. You notice he didn't say, I'll, he'll, I'll be lamenting this up in heaven with Jesus. He just said, I won't be there. So I don't care what they say about me after I'm dead. So he's still dealing with the real reality uh, consensus in our society that we only live this one life, you know, sort of existential thing. Whereas if people in more in general are reading things like Book of the Dead, they're reading the near-death literature, they're reading people who've returned from clinical death, which there are quite a few of them, um, and reading about children who remember previous lives and so forth, and many lives, many masters sort of thing, reading about regression therapists like Brian Wise, then uh, this is getting more in their culture, and uh, and they're going to be more, we're going to live more responsibly, and we're going to take care of the environment, and we're going to not seek just short-term, immediate profit, and we're going to take care of our grandchildren's world in a better way, I think. Because there is the selfish, you know, the self-enlightened self-interest in the mind that, well, I might be reborn among my grandchildren. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that I, of course I like my grandchildren, I love them, but on the other hand, I might be there too, so that gives me a little extra motive, you know? Yeah. And that's, people are like that. I, I think I, I think I understand that part of the value of having what you call, you know, an infinite lifestyle. I think the part yes. that I'm oh, thank you. the part that I'm still a little confused about when I asked you what reincarnates. I'm curious to know is there an aspect of what reincarnates that's personal, if you okay. will. Okay, well listen, listen. When when it's just you it's unfamiliar to us, you see. Like there's a, a book I really like by a woman who is trying to debunk reincarnation. It's called Spooks. And she's a very humorous materialist, but humorous writer. And at one point, when she's running in India, looking at some of these children who remember previous life, and actually being somewhat convinced about it, but still trying to find some loophole or something, you know. But because uh, that's the job of, of her book, you know. And um, but one time, one point, she says, you know, at least if these people who talk about reincarnation could tell me the mechanism, I might have a better chance of understanding it. How on earth did they expect this to happen? You know. What's the mechanism, you know, how you, you melt out of one body and then you rise up in another one? So, so the Book of the Dead, and our, which we describe in our tape and in the publication that goes along with it, uh, it, um, it, it gives you the mechanism, you know, and it's very clear-cut. But, but what I want to say to make it seem less abstruse to you or to anyone who's listening to this, you know, it is 
the DNA molecule was only discovered by a couple of scientists in some Cambridge laboratory while they were high on LSD, actually, as it eventually turned out, which they denied in order to get their Nobel Peace Prize. Hmm. But later, some secretary thinked on them, I believe, I heard. And um, so then they saw that double helix. They had a deep vision, you know. And, uh, and then there's this unbelievable thing where you, Tammy Simon, the shape of your earlobe and your grandmother's earlobe or your grandfather's earlobe or your father or your mother or somebody, your uncle, you know, is, is the same, you know, recognizably similar, put it that way. And how did that earlobe hop from that body to your body? Well, there's a DNA molecule way down in the microsphere with all this NB, NGG, whatever it is, on this spiral helix, you know, with these little lines of instructions. Is our model at least, I mean, it's something even more inconceivable than that if you go to the subatomic wave particle quantum level underlying the seemingly stable concept of a molecule. Anyway, you can go under it and it's even more abstruse. But anyway, the coding instructions that put proteins together into cells and then make an earlobe of a, of a certain shape or an eye of a certain color or a nose with a certain shape, a chin, etc., that comes from this kind of genetic ancestor through a melting down into a molecule and a code in a molecule. This molecule then meets another molecule in some kind of passion, moment of passion <laughs> or after a moment of passion, and then the two combine, and somehow that little piece of instructions that builds the earlobe builds something back up in tissue, and there you are, your earlobe resembles your grandmother's. That is an inconceivability in a way, and only, what, 30 years old, or I forget, you know. And, uh, and you know, it's, now it seems sort of normal to us, like, oh, yeah, of course, that's a DNA, yeah, we get the gene, yeah, we got that, right? But it's completely inconceivable, really. It's a, it's a, mystery, it's a mystery, you know, how it happens. As they now know, like, remember, they got their genome analyzed, 23,000 human genes. Then there's 2 billion genes in the bacterial genome, in the uh, biome, uh, what they call microbiome in the, in the gut that's essential to our life. So we're this community of beings, you know, actually. That's even a new thing. And, and the Buddhists knew that long ago. They talked about the 84,000 micro beings that make up the human body. So I'm just saying that in itself is an inconceivability that we have become used to. So the idea that the soul is something like a DNA, a gene, a DNA molecule, wherein your deeds of generosity or stinginess, your deeds of life-saving or murder, your genes of love, love or hate are, you know, the patterns of that, open-mindedness or, or fanaticism. The patterns of that are encoded in something analogous to a DNA molecule, but at a more subtle plane, even more subtle. Because remember, the idea of a molecule has atoms in it, and then, the, then we don't really think about, we think they're sort of building blocks, you know, on the old-fashioned idea of an atom, whereas the quantum people have already found out for us that atoms dissolve under analysis, and they went almost berserk last year thinking they discovered a Higgs boson, which accounts for some sort of volume, in, in matter, in material reality. And then meanwhile, that's all surrounded by 97% dark matter and dark energy, which was discovered by a woman physicist in Cambridge, which is the yin component. <laughs> and and this, this Higgs boson is only trying to pop up there in 3% of the matter of the universe. And the other dark matter, they have no idea what it is, and they haven't even seen it yet. They're just imagining it in, in mathematics. So... 
please, you know. No wonder that is all very hard to imagine. So the the book, book of the dead mechanism that your the deep patterns within your behavior of your mind and speech and thought and and body are encoded in this sort of molecule super subtle level and then carry that code and then they pick up on some parents if you're going to be human uh you know the DNA molecules and there's a meeting of the three DNAs and uh and then that produces a person who has a body with a lot of resemblance to the parents but actually they have their own soul and therefore they might be Mozart or they might do something completely different than their parents and and they can tell their parents you don't own me you know i came from somewhere thanks for the body and the parents can say you did choose us to be embodied and they it gives them each some freedom as individuals it's kind of very cute i like it mm-hmm. but one thing one thing i can say finally but just let me just say one last thing there which is that this kind of description because buddhists are truly scientific and buddha was there is a there is a very important dictum in his philosophy, his scientific and philosophical teachings that all descriptions of relative realities processes are only relative. That is to say, they are valid, more or less valid, in a certain context. To it, they're pragmatically useful. In other words, to people to to have a theory about a hypothetical theory about this or that is the way it is. There is no absolute description of any relative reality. So it isn't like I'm saying that karma and rebirth and reincarnation is the truth in a sort of dogmatic absolute sense, and even existentialism is false. I'm just saying that within relative reality, it's more realistic and practical than the one of something becoming nothing, you know? So, so So someone could, if anybody can prove that they're nothing after death, then by all means, as the Dalai <laughs> said once to Carl Sagan, go ahead and do it. We'll accept it. Okay, Robert, I did want to ask you a question about the Dalai Lama because I wanted to hear your view of his recent statement, relatively recent, that it's highly likely that he won't reincarnate, that there won't be a next Dalai Lama. What do you think about that? Uh, well, that's a misunderstanding. Okay. It, having to do with the political business with the silly Chinese. And uh, the Communist Party, who, of course, are atheists officially, but they're claiming they are going to control the reincarnations, you know, and they pick their pension lama and blah, 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 you know. And um, so when he says that, what he, what he has done is he has made a constitution for future Tibet, which, of course, he has no legislative authority in Tibet, but it's in the government in exile, and if Tibet has a constitution ever, even as part of a Chinese federation, you know, as a as a local one country, two systems like Hong Kong, which is what it should be within a Chinese federation, which is what he wants, uh, then the Tibetans will definitely enact what he has written there. And what he has written there is that the institution of the Dalai Lama, meaning a reincarnate Lama connected to a mansion in Drebung University, a particular house in Drebung University, um, monastic university uh, will not hold political office, will not have political responsibility, will not have political authority. He has written that he, the the head of the country will be an elected person, and in the, in the case of a Chinese federation, there will be some degree of having to defer to the Chinese uh, head of the federation, which will be presumably some hopefully elected person in Beijing in the future, not a dictator. We hope. 
And I believe realistically will be the case, actually, because I don't think dictatorships are really very practical. And um, so, so that's what he has written, meaning there won't be a Dalai Lama understood as the head of the country, if you follow me, like the leader of the country. That there would not be a reincarnation of this line of Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Universal Compassion, is is absolutely not the case. Of course, there's, and in fact, there are more such incarnations than the Dalai Lama. There are the Karmapa is also incarnation of Avalokiteshvara. There are many, many Taras, which are female incarnations of Avalokiteshvara. Same Tara and Avalokiteshvara, same being really, and male and female, same, and. Um, and there are many others, you know, because there's this, there's this description of Avalokiteshvara, you know, the thousand arms, you know, with the thousand eyes, symbolizing that as many emanations as there are beings who need an emanation to interact with, to find their own happiness and freedom from suffering. You know, it's like, you know, the people from the Judeo-Christian world have a difficulty with that because of their idea of the one Messiah at the one time, and that's all and never any more. Whereas in the Buddhist idea of the emanation body of the Buddha in Nirmanakaya, there's no limit to the you know emanations of of uh, you know divine helperhood, you know beings compassionately trying to help beings. So so he can't even stop that, and he has no intention of doing it. He just means there won't be a political one. And then he's often said maybe he he'll be he, his underlying statement that still holds is if my Tibetans want me to reincarnate, I will. But I will not rule them. I will be a monk in the. In, I will reincarnate as a monk in the Drebung Monastery, and I will be a Dharma practitioner and teacher, and uh, as a as a Lama should be. And I will not run the. I will not be. I, I once. I argued with him actually way time some years back, and I said, "Come on, you know, you 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 know, radical democracy ends up being cor- corrupted by money. It's good to have a spiritual head, even if it's just symbolic." So why don't you serve? And he said to me, I don't want to be a prisoner like Lady Di. <laughs> 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 he did. He said that. And, and, and he told me to shut up and not to go around telling Tibetans, so at least draft him into being a constitutional lama. You know, insist that he do that and all this. And they have tried to insist, and he refused, and he told me to shut up. But I kept bugging him about it. And because, you know, I have my doubts about, you know, the American democracy being, you know, citizens united, corrupted by the Koch brothers and other such ilk, you know. And, um, you know, Mammon, I, th- I was telling him, we, America is not a democracy, it's a theocracy, but the god of, the, of America is money. <laughs> Mammon, that's what it is. And, uh, and he, he understands that, but he still thinks it's a better democracy. Well, sooner or later, you know, the people will assert themselves. So... So um, so that's what he meant, A. And then he does a little dance with the Chinese, and they say, no, he can't not reincarnate. He has to reincarnate, and we're going to be the ones who are going to choose his reincarnation, and then he's going to be our puppet leader of the Tibetan. You know, that's what they're kind of saying. So then he, so he just bluntly says, well, I just won't reincarnate under those conditions. You know, but he doesn't always maybe say under those conditions. So then the press jumps up and says, oh, Dalai Lama won't reincarnate, you see, and people get that idea. But the... But the Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara, you know, is like a Jedi warrior, and he will be there. He'll be present and help. He'll be there with the Force, you know, with beings, as long as there are suffering beings. He has that prayer, you know, as long as there are beings, space full of sentient beings, infinite space full of sentient beings, so I will infinitely be present with them until they're free of suffering. That's his major prayer that he prays every day. So that we don't have to worry about that, you know. He's so great, I must say, just I, I must... Uh, 
praise him. I had so much fun at his birthday parties, many birthday parties. For some reason, I got invited to, you know, because I guess I'm the, I'm the one who's known him since 1964, so that's now 51 years. I have a kind of seniority. So different people asked me to show up on this stage and that stage with him and, you know, tease him and joke with him and wish him happy birthday with everybody. And it's really totally been fun. It was really fun, you know. And he was so terrific, and he gave the most excellent teaching to all the Tibetans. But uh, in the Javits Center in New York, he had like 11,000, 12,000 Tibetans from all over the U.S. And he gave them such a fired-up teaching that I'm sure it'll have a huge impact on them. They will really be trying to practice Dharma as well as getting along as a, you know, as a refugee and an exile and you know, having a regular American life. They'll, he really, really intensified their Dharma dedication, I think, very strongly. And what he had to say to us and to everyone was just really marvelous. So sweet, you know. Do you want to share a pith message from? Oh yeah, well, uh, for example, you know, he 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 never once asked for. Actually, I had to a couple of times say, well, you know, please do. You know, there were a lot of activists, some Cesar Chavez disciples in California. It was California was really a lot of fun, and there were students and things. And I had to say, listen, everyone, you know, to be an activist, do this and that. They were, there was one panel of all activists. And, uh, you know, against global climate change, you know, against, uh, you know, against the global warming thing, against uh, labor, you know, persecution of the labor forces, against women. You know, there are all these kind of things were going on in California. And I had to say, well, one thing, and his holiness will never say this, but you're all wishing him happy birthday. But one thing you could do for his birthday is do something for Tibet. And when I say that, I don't mean you do have to go out and have a demonstration politically or you have to give a lot of money or do anything like that. You could just read a book about it and learn and inform yourself about it, and then you might think of something else you'll do. And just think about it, pray for it even, you know, for the Tibetans. Uh, that, that would be the best birthday present he could, he could have, but he'll never ask you for that. He'll say, pray for the Syrians, you know, uh, help, the, help the refugees from, um, who are die- drowning in the Mediterranean coming from North Africa, etc. You know, he'll tell you. He'll never ask for himself. So I, I, I did that in a couple of instances. And, um, and one thing, you know, like um, he, 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 you know, Ann Curry was the moderator in California who was a brilliant woman and did an awesome job. But he was very interventionist. You know, he would insist on cutting his own cake and handing it out. And he would, to everybody on stage at least, and then he would ask the ushers to go out and take little bits of people on the, at least in the front rows, at least in these big, you know, 15,000 people couldn't feed all of them, and urging them to go and have a party at home for them. And, they, and everybody's having happy birthday. He was on stage in Glastonbury with Patti Smith, uh, and everybody was wishing him happy birthday at a big concert they had there, rock and roll concert. And he told everybody, he gave a little, he gave a little happy birthday homily by saying, listen, thanks for congratulating me on my birthday, he said, but... The main thing is every day is a happy birthday. You should have a happy birthday every day. And what you give birth to on that day is your love and your compassion and your kindness to your friend. And you have a happy day and you make someone else happy. And that's, that's the way to celebrate a birthday. And every day is a birthday. You know, this kind of thing, I'm just saying. He was very down to earth and very sweet and, and really, of course, amazing people. He was amazing people because right now Tibet is in a terrible condition, totally locked down. And, uh, and yet he's happy himself. He's agonized about it, really, but he's able to find the deepest bliss of his own selves and somehow realize that moping over the suffering is not going to help 
and he'll have the energy to do something effective about it and represent his people. And, and basically, of course, the Chinese would stop torturing the Tibetans if the Chinese were happy and satisfied. So he actually truly does love the Chinese in the Buddhist sense of wants them to be happy. And he doesn't just sit and shout and scream how horrible it all is, you know. It's just wonderful. I, let, I really, really love the guy. You know, I, I, I come to see nowadays, to me, if Shakyamuni Buddha were alive today, he would be the Dalai Lama for the whole planet. And he's also the Dalai Lama for the whole planet. He's not just the Tibetans anymore. He's all of our Dalai Lamas. And by the way, he's massively popular in China. Underground, even Communist Party members love the guy, and they have secret meetings with lamas, and they hear about Dalai Lama, and they, they like it. It's just crazy that there's some few people stuck in some old idea of genociding the Tibetans and crushing them or manipulating their culture or, or depriving them of their culture, and their big enemy is the Dalai Lama, they think. Meanwhile, he's their best friend. You know, They're just so confused, those people, you know. He really is, you know. But for example, you know, my book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, which I still really like, although Hu Jintao didn't take advantage of it, you know, the one per, you know, we're in a moment in history where the meeting between the white people and the yellow people is a big deal, you know. China and the Euro American world, including the Russians who are sort of Euro Euros, is a big deal and you know, now that China's becoming very, very powerful it could turn into a really big mess, meaning a world war, you know, basically. You know, they're starting to push their weight around, and people are, you know, even Kissinger is pissed off with them now, for example. And he's finally realized that his coddling policy was actually misguided. And uh, he's very worried about, you know, their potential conflict with the Japanese, their potential invading uh, Taiwan, et cetera, you know, and, and sparking a, a, a serious problem. And not all, not to mention the fact that they're damming the rivers in Tibet, the river headwaters in Tibet, and they're melting the glaciers at a faster rate by trying to colonize Tibet, and they're threatening the environments of all the Asian countries from Pakistan all the way to Vietnam, who live on rivers coming out of Tibet, and they themselves live on, the Yangtze comes from Tibet, and the Yellow River comes out of Tibet. And they're wrecking the river systems in Tibet to get electricity to do mining in their frenetic manner. And they're crazed, like locust-like behavior. And, um, you know, going berserk on communist capitalism, <laughs> you know. And uh, it's really dangerous, you know. And who would be the better mediator to the Chinese people, between the Chinese government and the Chinese masses, between the Chinese people and the foreign people, than the Dalai Lama? He is beloved everywhere on the planet by all the people, and he is beloved by the Chinese people, Kuan Yin. And why don't the Chinese, if he really is an emperor, Xi Jinping, why doesn't he be the friend of this man and have that man be mediate from his power level to the people who are feeling crushed by his power and get them to make himself actually truly popular? You know, they say he's a big popularity cult, Xi Jinping. And he's waving mouth at a red book. But actually, there are 50 major riots and demonstrations in China per day that are crushed down violently by all kinds of secret police and special police and God knows what, and people thrown in prison and killed. It's really turmoil there, you know. So Dalai Lama, is, you know, he's their guy. If they would just realize, you know, he's, and he promised to live another couple of decades, mm. actually. Mm. 
I sneaked up on him in public and I got him to confess that his the Tibetan the great Tibetan physician like the Edgar Casey of Tibetan diagnosticians had done his life pulse and said he could live to 103 if he chose to. And then and then he and then he got mad at me so he said, "Well, you have to stay there until you're what, how old? 97? Okay, you have to stay." <laughs> I like the sound of that. <laughs> I, I did too. Well, I don't know. It, you know, the body gets so creaky and achy. But maybe if I have a better diet, I'll be okay. You know, if I have friends like you, I won't mind living to ninety-seven. I like and, that. And he doesn't either. You know. Oh, they, well, I'll tell you one wonderful thing that happened in in uh, in California that people will like, and that is there. We were at UC Irvine for part of the programs. There were three days of programs in the big, huge auditorium. And there was a one event on stage, one session, you know, two-hour session or three-hour session, of the Dalai Lama Fellows on the Irvine campus because somebody raised the money and they have this special fellowship for seniors, undergraduates, you know, in that big 30,000, huge university. And then people do some altruistic project, you know, some, uh, some um, social entrepreneurship project. And there are about 15 of those students. And then... And they, they were on stage, and Ann Curry said, okay, students, you know, first I had to say something about what I'd learned from Dalai Lama in 51 years, and somebody, a guy from India, had to give a little talk like that, two of us. And then she turned to the students, and she said, now, please ask the Dalai Lama a question. This is your chance, and you ask him a question, and then he'll answer all your questions together in a final summation. So then Dalai Lama contradicted says, don't do that. Have them say what they think the world should be. You know, I have a limited knowledge. I'm not going to answer questions. Have them tell the audience what they want to tell them. So then they started doing that. So then the last of the students to speak was a beautiful young woman, uh, African-American woman named Regina, who was a Dalai Lama fellow and was sitting between me and Ann Curry on the Dalai Lama's right hand. You know, it was Dalai Lama, Ann Curry, Regina, me, and then a few more people in this row on this side. And then there was another 14 or 15 students on the other side. So she was the last one to speak because she wasn't in the row on the other side. So Regina, so Anne turns to Regina, okay, Regina, you want to tell about your Dalai Lama fellowship? So Regina starts talking and she says, well, I, I could talk about my fellowship, but that wouldn't really be so interesting to His Holiness or to the people. What I'd really like to talk about is why I tried out for the fellowship and I was so happy to get one. And that's because I really love the Dalai Lama. He is so great. And 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 then she started saying, you, you know, and she was looking at it, and she said, and you are so handsome, she said, <laughs> and you're so kind, and you radiate joy, and I just love you, she said. And by getting to know you and watching your videos and seeing you now and then in some big event or something, and like right now, seeing being close to you, she said, you let me know what I want in a husband. <laughs> <laughs> she said, and she went on in that vein for some time about how much she loved him, actually, which was really sweet. And and Dalai Lama was looking all like a little bit embarrassed, a little bit amused. He, you know, he didn't, he was getting translated some of it. He didn't know he couldn't get every, everything she was speaking quickly. And then Anne Curry says, uh, says uh, after she finished, Anne says, wow. She says, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable sitting between the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> she said, and, and then that was pretty much the end of the event. A little bit, and then she was some final moments, and then we all stood up in a row, you right? And then Anne had to go over to a podium. So then 
Regina was next to the Dalai Lama, and, you know, everybody was linked arms, you know, and they were taking photos. And then, and then the audience totally cracked up because as everybody turned to leave, you know, the Dalai Lama shook hands with every single one of the students and, uh, and you know, wished them all the best and all this kind of thing, shook hands with her. But then she was the last one he shook hands with. And then when he shook hands with her, he said, I was standing just on the other side of her, so I got to see this in full glory. He touched his cheek with his finger, and he said, okay, he said, you can give me a kiss here. On <laughs> <laughs> his cheek. And then he puckered his lips, like for a kiss, which I think he probably never did in his life. But anyway, he puckered his lips, and then he touched that with his finger, and he said, not here. <laughs> he said, you can give me a kiss here. Other cheek, not here, he said. And he pounded his lips with his finger. And he said, you can't kiss me here, he said. I'm sorry, I don't know, but I was the whole 14,000 people completely cracked up. Yeah. It was so incredibly cute. Yeah. And sweet, you know, really. Was. Yeah, and thank you, Robert, for bringing a little bit of the 80th birthday celebration festivities here to yeah. our listeners. Thank you. It was good. I, I was actually good in that one, too, in the sense that when I told what I learned from the dialogue, I decided I wanted to lighten it up a little, you know. So I said, well, Your Holiness, because the question was from Ann Curry was, what have you learned from the Dalai Lama in 51 years? So I said, well, one thing I've learned from Your Holiness, I said, and I'm so grateful for all your teachings and such great things, I said, is, but, but I have to confess that I have somewhat failed to learn all of them. <laughs> and, you know, you made me a monk early on very kindly, although my older guru warned us both that I wouldn't last as a monk, which didn't happen. So there I failed you, you know, and you taught me how to try to be mindful and control my temper, and how not to be greedy and how to do this, that, and the other. And I didn't really do a good job with that either. But then I said, but luckily, I said, when I did go back into the lay life, I said, I met a wonderful woman who reflected to me the same teachings of your holiness, I said, about how to be more controlled and to be more kind. And she used to tell me often how I wouldn't have listened to her, but I listened to you, but not to her. And I should actually learn to listen to her, too. And I said, I'm trying to make you equal with the wisdom of women. I would say like this. People like that in California. They were clapping, you know. And then... And I said, but, but on the other hand, I said, I have to also confess there that in 48 years of marriage with this wonderful woman who has become my second guru, I said, she still has not accepted me as her disciple. So I've been failing to fully listen to her and fully understand her too. I said, you know, and it's not only you, but I've also failed to understand her. And people are quite laughing. He's kind of amused. He's looking a little bit amazed, though, but he's, he's laughing too. And then his translator is looking a little irritated, you know because I'm sort of acting like an ordinary person could teach something, you know. So, so, then, uh, so then I said, but, I, but in 48 years, she has a, she just finally lately been admitting that I have made some progress, I said. So then my question to you, Your Holiness, is, do you, do you agree? Have I made a little progress after all this time? <laughs> and then he was very sweet. He said, oh, yes, you've made a lot of progress, <laughs> whatever, you know. But anyway, I was pleased with myself. And my wife was not there, unfortunately, because she had to prepare some event in New York for the birthday at Tibet House. So she wasn't there, although she would have been embarrassed and annoyed with me if I did that. But I just I thought I would represent her that way. And I do believe that, actually. You know, something I have to say. 
I do believe, Tammy, I'm not just catering and pandering here, and I'm not running for office, but I really do believe that the male chauvinist Buddhists in this country need to learn a lot from the women, whether those women are Buddhists or not. And, um, you know, the Dalai Lama did say in Rome, by the way, he might reincarnate as a woman, much less not. Mm. He did ever say he was going to he said, I, he said, because nowadays the danger of war is so great and we have to have a peaceful 21st century and which kind of got off on the wrong foot. <laughs> he says, you know, thanks to my buddy W. Uh, he's not listening to me. He said that, that um, maybe I should reincarnate as a woman, he said, because they tend less quickly to violence than the men do, he said. They're not perfect, but they tend a little less quick to that, that solution to things. You know, he, he's learned that. And then he did the, the, the um, audience in Italy where he said this, we just flipped when he then said, and if I do, he said, I'll be much more attractive. And he made like a modeling gesture, you know, where one hand goes up, you know, and one hand is uh, yeah. stretched out. So it was, he made that gesture and threw his head back. He said, and in that case, I'll be much more attractive, he said. <laughs> I was unfortunately not there. It was in Livorno in, in the near Pisa in Italy during a teaching. Robert, it is always a wild romp to talk with you. <laughs> I always feel the bliss shining through, really. Oh, thank you. You uplift me. Well, you bring it out. It's not me. Listen, I'm miserable as ever when I'm slaving away with all my unfinished projects. You bring it out, Tammy. I know you do. You're one of my favorite type A bodhisattvas. <laughs> you introduced me to that phrase the first time I met you. Listen, I love talking to you. I don't want to keep you up all night. So all the best to you, really, Tammy. I've just enjoyed chatting with you. Okay, very good, Robert. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. Big hug. Bye. Big hug. I've been speaking with Robert Thurman with Sounds True. Robert has created the audio series Liberation Upon Hearing, In the Between, Living with the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as well as a six-session audio program called The Jewel Tree of Tibet, the Enlightenment Engine of Tibetan Buddhism. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.